Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, Matthew's account of the resurrection or really what happens right after the resurrection. It holds so many important questions for us. What's the role of evidence of our senses in our lives of faith? What's the role of fear in our human experience? And what does it mean to act with both fear and great joy? And finally, how do we balance the need to go to the tomb, to honor what was and grieve its loss, and the call to leave it behind and move forward to the next thing? The women managed to do both in this story, and it's an awfully good thing they did. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? What's new? Oh, you got the question out before I did. I did. I do it every time, though. Because so I always want you to start out and have the witty banter. (laughs) (laughs) I have one. I I have a funny memory. To share that came up this week. It's a Bible worm memory. I love Bible worm One of our more ridiculous moments. So I lead a Torah study on Tuesday afternoons that is uh, mostly Jewish folks, but some Christian folks. That's interesting. Yeah, they just like started as, and they're like friends of the Jewish folks. I don't know. So, but we only read Hebrew Bible texts. And some, and and people in the group take turns sort of summarizing some sections of biblical text and talking about what interpreters have said about them yeah. over the course of the study. And so someone had signed up to do it last week. And before she offered her summary and her remarks, you know, she just said, you know, I feel, you know, humble and sort of ill-equipped to do this. And you all have been studying so long and you know so much and you have more facility with the Hebrew. And this was one of the the Christian folks who was in the class. And like, you know, this sort of big, uh, not apology, but you know, all all the introduction. And then she went on to give this like totally beautiful summary and like really meaningful uh, messages that she had pulled out of the text. And so in response to like, say, it's okay. Like, we all, it's really good to study with people who don't know a text as well or don't know it in the same way as you might feel like you do in this class. I told the story of early, earlier in my days reading the New Testament with you. Remember like the first season or two when I just really had never heard any of these stories in my life and my questions were so comically (laughs) ridiculous. Remember when there was a centurion? Yeah. And like centurion <laughs> is just not a word you encounter if it's you're not. not reading the New Testament or other texts from this time period. Right, that's exactly right. Which I do not. And so I thought it was a centaur, like those <laughs> half horse, half. Yeah, I was like, 
There's a centaur in the New Testament? This just got so interesting. Yeah, that's the way I picture them now. Every time I think of, I see a Roman soldier in the biblical text, I'm <laughs> and like, And you hey, laughed for like an hour. You were like, hold on one moment, yeah. please. We need to talk about the fact that you thought there was a centaur in the New Testament. <laughs> I remember that one. And my other favorite one was when you called Pontius Pilate Pontius Pilates. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what his name looks like. Yeah. I mean, but I was like, I have the reverse problem where the first time I saw people practicing Pilates, I called it Pilots. And so like it, it works both directions. But so Pontius oh. Pilati always makes me laugh. Oh. <laughs> in the, Pontius Pilati and the Centaurs. Ooh, that's going to be the name of our band when we get our band together. Pontius, Pontius Pilati and the Centaurs. The I don't even centaurs. know what genre of music that would be. Mm, I don't either. Now the word Pontius is making me think of like, kickboxing and like punching like oh, boxing. Yeah. I always thought of it like a poncho like he's a oh, uh-huh. <laughs> it's like a poncho centaur Pilates. wearing a poncho doing Pilates that's mm-hmm. we just made anyway. good good stuff is yeah. it though yeah is it is it, <laughs> it good is stuff what it is. it's entertaining stuff it is what it we is we entertain ourselves anyway mm-hmm. also it's Easter this week <laughs> Happy Easter, Bobby. Yeah, thanks. I mean, in the Bible worm world, it is, uh, you know, we're releasing this a week ahead of time, so it's not quite Easter, but. I know, but the anticipation of it is like the best part. Yeah, textually, it is, it's Easter this week. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a good day. Good, good stuff. Well, actually, a week before Easter is not really good stuff. No, no, there's actually a lot of bad stuff between here and there. <laughs> there's a, bad, a lot of bad stuff. It's going to come Between Sunday and Easter, that's a rough, stuff. that's a rough yeah. go. Yeah. Well, today we are focused on Easter, Easter, and the text that we have is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Before we embark on reading this text itself, is there anything that you want to offer to orient us? What do we need to know coming in? Yeah, so Jesus, of course, has been crucified, and his body has been placed in the tomb. And one of the details that Matthew adds that's not in the other Gospels is that the Romans have stationed soldiers around the tomb to guard it. And right at the end of chapter 27, we get that notice. They're afraid that people are going to, his disciples are going to say he's been raised from the dead. Like they're going to come steal his body away and say he's been raised from the dead. And so they put guards around the tomb to make sure nobody comes and takes the body. And so you've got this, I mean, I think historically you might imagine that this is actually what was said about Jesus, you know, between the events of the actual historical day and the writing of Matthew's gospel is people said, ah, his disciples just came and took his body. But mm-hmm. so this story gets inserted in there as a way of saying, no, that's not what happened. But then we end up with soldiers at the tomb on Easter morning, which is going to then play into our text in an interesting kind of way. That's really interesting. And it makes so much sense. Like, of course, you know, there was a, a Jewish, fairly widespread, I think, Jewish expectation of bodily resurrection at the time, the beginning of the Messianic age. Right. Jesus has already said these things that about being resurrected right. in this text. And yeah, if your main proof of resurrection is the body's gone, exactly. that's easy to fake. Like, exactly. That one you can, yeah, you can fudge that a little bit. Yeah. Really interesting that Matthew addresses it head on in that way. Yeah. He does. All righty. Well, shall we just dive in then, my friend? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So I am reading from the NRSV, and we are in chapter 28 
of Matthew, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. Yeah, those guards didn't do much good. <laughs> they did not. <laughs> no, nope. No, I guess, but they weren't supposed to like battle with angels. They were going to, you know, block Yeah, they the were just cycles. there in case some grave yeah. robber came and tried to sneak in and take the body. And so they were not anticipating a divine intervention yeah. here. Yes, true story. Okay, so I want to talk about the the sort of whenness of this from two different perspectives. One of them is like, uh, the day of the week. So right. like it in the, in the NRSV, it gives us, it gives me two different markers after the Sabbath. And as the first day of the week was dawning, right? What does it do in your translation? Same thing at dawn on the first, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week. Does, does that reference to the first day of the week make you think of creation or does it just make you think it's Sunday? Uh, well, it honestly, it just made me think it's Sunday, but now that you say, think of the first day of creation. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's really lovely. Yeah. So we just had the Sabbath day on the seventh day when God rested. And then now we're cycling back through. I like, I love that connection. I mean, it is, yes, it is. It is Sunday. And you know, that is how you would just say the first day of the week in Hebrew is just how you'd say Sunday. So, so I don't think it's like, you know, something to perseverate overly much on, but I don't know. We've talked a couple of different ways, I think, about the ways in which Jesus was inaugurating some kind of like revisiting of creation and re uh, shifting things around, you know, like it is a recreation. It is a a new beginning of like really a different imagining of what, what the earthly realm is or will be. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting to think. I really like that, Amy. And sometimes you'll hear Christians talk about this as the eighth day of creation. So you've had the seventh Mm. day, seven day cycle. And then this is the sort of the next, like the inauguration of the next thing. This, that's not exactly in the text. I mean, it's not in the text, but it's a sort of an interesting way of thinking about the same idea. So in the one sense, time just keeps on going. So it's just Sunday and it's cycling through the regular old Mm -hmm. time. But on another level, time has fundamentally changed. And so there is a new creation, a new period has been inaugurated. I I really think that's important to hold on to both of those senses. Yeah. I like that a lot. A new, a new period has been inaugurated. Yeah. Okay. So then the other way I wanted to think about time is how, okay. (laughs) I was going to say, how far are we after Jesus's death? But I, I guess I know the answer to that question. It's the third day. It's the third day, but it's kind of interesting because it's really only been like 36 hours. So he okay. he dies at th- in the afternoon on Friday. So that's yeah. the first day, but it's very, very late in the day. And then he is in the grave all day on Saturday. And then on this beginning of day three, well, in the Jewish counting, I guess we're 12 hours into day three since the day begins at sunset. Mm-hmm. But so... We will sometimes say Jesus was in the tomb for three days, but that's actually not the biblical telling. He was 
resurrected on the third day. But really, hour-wise, it's from the the afternoon of Friday to the morning of Sunday. Yeah. There were two sleeps. <laughs> exactly. There were two sleeps in between. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to note here that some Jews at that time, we know from other texts, believed that the soul departed from the body after three days. Hmm. I don't know if that would have been relevant here or not, but it just came to my mind as I was... As I was reading it. That's really interesting. I love, because, you know, the question of like, why the third day? And I, you yeah. know, my answer is usually because you're pretty sure somebody's really dead on day That's three. That's also a good answer. It's like in the gospel of John, Jesus delays, when Lazarus dies, Jesus delays a couple of days. And so by the time he gets there, they say, it's already been three days or whatever. And his body's already stinking. Yeah. So, so that's just a way of saying, yeah. there is no question any longer about whether He's just wounded or, you know. Yes. Or in a coma. In a coma. Or, you know, yeah. That, yeah. I was also reading, which I think actually helps us here, that there is a Jewish tradition described in the Talmud in which people would go to the tomb for three days after a burial to make sure that the person actually had died. That apparently mm. it was, there was it happened sometimes that they would bury someone who was not actually dead. And so then that person would, nobody came to the tomb, would just be trapped in the tomb. And that would be like really awful. And so people would go and stand, watch or check in daily at the tomb to make sure that the person had not revived. And so this, this text says they went to look at the tomb and the question like, well, why are you looking at the tomb? Yeah. That's one explanation of it is they were going back to do the thing that you do to make sure that the that the person has in fact died. That's so interesting because I had the next little note I had was like Amy is remedial questions. Why would they go to the tomb? Yeah. And and I didn't I didn't know that. That's again like a very practical reason to go. In Mark's gospel you'll remember they go to the tomb to anoint the body for burial. So Jesus had died on Friday late in the day. They had sort of rushed him into the tomb. They had not been able to anoint him. And so that's why they, they, they're going back on Easter morning to anoint the body. Matthew doesn't tell it that way. The reason I think that Matthew tells it that way is because back in chapter 26, Jesus was at, at a meal with his disciples and a woman came in and anointed his head with oil, which is a story told in all the gospels. But in Matthew's gospel, they say, you shouldn't have done that. And Jesus says, she has anointed me for burial. Mm-hmm. So in Matthew's telling, Jesus was already anointed for burial while he was still alive by that woman who poured oil and perfume over his head. So he doesn't need to be anointed again. So then why are the women there? Well, to look at the tomb. And I think you could interpret that the way I, that I was suggesting a minute ago, that they've yeah. come to make sure he's really dead. That's very practical. I think you could also read it as just, you visit the tombs of people that you've lost. And so maybe this is, so it doesn't say they're there to mourn him or anything. It says they're there to look at the tomb. Yeah, I get this. I love the sort of practical element of it in terms of like what the what the practices of that time would have been. And I get this, I don't know, this like feeling of sort of intimacy and closeness that's just like, no, there's nothing you can do about the fact that someone has died. Right. You know that they're dead. And sometimes you still want to be close to what you have left of them, which yeah. is their, which is the body. And yeah, 
you know, current Jewish mourning traditions are are more oriented towards like surrounding yourself with your community, grieving in your home, not, you know, like starting to create this separation between the world of the dead and the world of the, you know, like making sure you've anchored yourself in the world of the living and your community while you grieve. But there's something, I don't know, I find really touching here about they, they, they go to the tomb as soon as they can. Yes. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have all our timestamps now. And then we get the, <laughs> I picture this like intimate moment of connection where they go to the tomb so early in the morning yeah. and all of a sudden there's, there's an earthquake and yes. an angel and yes. it, it's just so, I like, I imagine cemeteries as this sort of like the strange quiet of the place. And then all of a sudden it uh, is, is very much not quiet. Yes. No, it, it would be so frightening. Very jarring. Yes. Yeah. So very much a, yeah, I would not, I would not probably want to experience this. Maybe after I knew what was happening, I would be okay. But my goodness, in a, in a <laughs> graveyard and, or at a tomb anyway, and then the earth is shaking and there's things coming out of the sky. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, no, mm-hmm, not peaceful. Bobby, what do you make of the appearance of this angel? That appearance of the angel is so interesting. Like uh, Mark's gospel, which Matthew is following, just describes it as like a man in a white robe. And so you're like, is that really yeah. an angel? Matthew has left us zero, <laughs> zero yeah, doubts. Yeah, it's definitely an angel. Yeah. And I mean, he uses the word, an angel from the Lord, and you see him coming down from heaven. And that language in verse three, his face was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. First of all, that's just a cool yeah. way to describe that. Like, it's yeah. like your Tide commercial plus. Like on, I don't even know what exponent of the Tide commercial. Your face yeah. is like lightning. <laughs> yeah. Face like light. Like I hope my Tide doesn't do that because that seems like that might be a problem. But face like lightning is such a fascinating, like just to try to picture or like how would you render that if you were an artist? Yes. So I think on the one hand, it is very clear that this angel is more impressive than your average human, right? It's okay. lightning face and really clean clothes. And so better than us. At the same time, it reminds me of the description of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration mm-hmm. back in chapter 17. His face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. Mm-hmm. And so the angel actually seems like slightly lower than that, right? Jesus, Mm. face like the sun. Angel, face like lightning. Like the sun is more radiant than the lightning is. Garments white as snow, garments white as light. So I I just, in this sort of image, like it's calling back to that text, I think, and saying this guy is not quite Jesus, but he's more than you and me. Yeah. What do you think about that, Angel? That's really interesting. No, that, um, I love that. And I hadn't thought... I mean, I was thinking of, you know, that Moses's face oh, sort yeah. of being so radiant after he is up on Mount Sinai that people can't look at him and yeah. he has to wear a veil. And so imagining that the angel's face would be all the more radiant because the angel is in such proximity to God so much of the time. But yes. I love that. I love that you brought in that um, transfiguration scene here. And yeah, the language to describe Jesus is 
in that scene is, it seems even more extreme. Yes. There's also that line at the end of the parable in chapter 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. So there is kind of a connection. Like we're being sort of connected in there too. I mean, we have assuming yeah. that we're righteous, which I might be yeah. a assumption, but <laughs> right. you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. So the shininess, like I, I like what you're saying. I think that's really important about, there is something about God's presence that makes yeah. creatures light up, right? It makes us shine. And we're invited into that in, in, in its own kind of a way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's still a continuum. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And I really like thinking of it, not just in terms of like the shine doesn't just come from your own inherent goodness. Right. The shine comes from the fact that maybe your goodness or have water, that's a very crass word, but the that that's what causes you to put yourself in the presence of God all the time. Exactly. And it's the presence of God that really makes exactly makes for the shining. Exactly. And that going all the way back to Moses, I think that yeah. that connection is beautiful. I like that a lot. So then the text reports the response of the guards, mm-hmm. but not the women. Oh, that's true. Yet. Yeah. Yet, at least. What, let me ask why, first, I don't know, why, why do you think it reports that, I mean, like the women are the main actors here. This is a story about what the women do. Yeah. How, I don't know. How do you, is, is it just sort of like setting the scene? Like this is sort of being told from a little bit from the women's perspective. And so what they see is these men losing their minds. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, a couple of things there. I think that's I think that's part of it. Is it it amplifies the role of the women in this text? Maybe they're a little. Maybe they're afraid because the angel has to tell them in a minute not to be afraid. But mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. they are not afraid in the way that these soldiers are afraid. Yeah. And I think that simultaneously amplifies their bravery and strength and courage in a in a really important way. And it also makes fun of the Roman soldiers. Like these men, you know, trained warriors. And when God actually shows up, all they can do is freeze up and become like dead men. And we've been talking all this whole season in Matthew, we've been talking about the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of heaven and like how they are competing with one another. And here they come into contact and Rome just freezes. And so like, there's never been any, in the grand scheme of the world, there's never been any contest here. When there's direct contact, the soldiers have have no power. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, here I go having empathy for the wrong characters again. But, like, <laughs> this is not what they were put there for. No, yeah. <laughs> the only threats they anticipated, threats or, you know, whatever, the what they were protecting this body from was humans who were going to use all of their human strength yeah. to try to remove the body. Yeah, this was not in their contract. As no, these guys are like making minimum wage, you know. Yeah, this was, this was not part of the deal. They've got overnight duty. Yes, that was not part of the deal. But I like that. Like they go from thinking like, ah, oh, we're so, you know, impressive and nobody could come here and do anything yeah. that we can't handle. And then suddenly they realize how powerless they are. 
And like what just a, a sort of almost failure of imagination it is to say like the only things that are powerful in the world are these, you know, forces of various empires that we are yes. aware of. And we know how to handle those. That's what we've been trained to handle. Yes. And then this is just completely categorically something else. Yes. I wonder if that's, you're right, it does, the angel does tell the women not to be afraid, but in my imagining at least, they are, yes, at least not paralyzed with fear. Right. And I wonder if part of that is just, they are oriented towards this other kingdom. Like they they are aware, at least on some level, like that this kind of thing can happen and yes. God can intervene in the world in this way. And yeah, it's scary when it happens, but it's not. It's not beyond their imagination. Right. They have been imagining yeah. things like this. I think that's absolutely right. And it takes us back to that first verse where it says they came to look at the tomb. And mm-hmm. the other possibility of why they are looking at the tomb is that they had heard Jesus's predictions about his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so they've come to look at the tomb to see. Now, Matthew doesn't say like, I think if that were the only obvious interpretation, he would have said to see if Jesus had been raised or something like that. Yeah. So. I don't know that they've gotten all the way there, but it's at least somewhere in them that this Mm -hmm. is a possibility. Mm -hmm. And so when it happens, it's something that they are at some level prepared for. I I think that's a really good insight. The other thing that happens right here is it's this arrival of the angel is accompanied by an earthquake. Mm -hmm. The word there, seismos, we, we saw it actually in the Palm Sunday text where when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the colt and the donkey, Jerusalem shook. And that was the, it wasn't an earthquake, but it was the verb was like, it shook like an earthquake shakes, you know? Mm. And so we had this sort of metaphorical trembling of the power structure back in that text in chapter 21. And then here we have the literal shaking of the ground, which freezes the military arm of the power structure. The ground also uh, shook back in the crucifixion text when Jesus died in Matthew's gospel, the ground shook. And so there's this sort of like seismic activity that takes place in these important moments, which I think reiterates the the world is changing and the, the creation yeah. itself is responding to this, this new thing that, that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And at the most sort of fundamental, elemental level, you know, like the solid ground under your feet is not solid in the face of this kind of change. Yes. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Today, I want to tell you about a group called the Bible Worm Collaborative, which you can join through our Patreon. The Bible Worm Collaborative is a group of Bible Worm listeners who meet together to collaborate on our interpretations of the biblical text. Once a month, we meet on Zoom to discuss the narrative lectionary text for the following month. Amy and I often draw on the questions and insights of the collaborative, giving you a chance to shape the direction of the podcast. Starting this month, Bible Worm Collaborative members also have access to a new, exclusive Discord group where you can discuss the text with other collaborative members, offering insights, asking questions, and sharing resources. Amy and I check in regularly to offer our thoughts as well. Collaborative members also receive early access to episodes, a terrific Bible Worm sticker, and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. 
You can become a member of the Bible Worm Collaborative by joining our Patreon for just $14 a month. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. Okay, is there anything else you want to say about these opening verses? I think that's what I have. All righty. Then I'm picking up in verse five. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been raised as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. I think the first thing that that strikes me a little bit is just, you know, I noted in the last section is that even though the women are sort of the main actors here, it describes the, the guard's reaction to the presence of the angel. But then here, it's sort of like the camera shifts back. Yes. And the angel doesn't say anything to the guards. Right. I mean, they're, you know, frozen in time or, you know, <laughs> they're just sort of pushed to the background. He addresses the women directly. And the first thing he offers is to show the women this, uh, I don't know, maybe not proof. I don't know if it's proof or evidence to like show them, show them what they might want to see, that the body's not there. Right. Yeah, I think that's really important, Amy. And Terry, our liturgist in the Bible Worm Collaborative discussion the other day, she noted that this is the gospel in which when the women arrive, the stone is still in front of mm-hmm. the tomb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they've seen the stone roll away, and then the angel says he's not here, and then he's not there. And so whereas the other gospels, the stone has already been rolled away, and so you don't yeah. quite know what happened. Right. Here is a much clearer sort of statement. Yes. About that. Yeah. It does. It's interesting to me that it doesn't narrate them. I mean, I guess he says, come see the place where they laid him. And so maybe we just assume that they did. It is interesting. I mean, it, that's interesting to me too. It doesn't narrate that they did. They certainly don't ask to see. I think it, I don't know. It was interesting for me to think about this sort of vis-a-vis, uh, I don't know. I want to say faith, but that's kind of a general term. Like, the angel is offering to to show them more sort of sensory, tangible yes. evidence. They didn't ask for it, though they might have come in part to see. And it doesn't narrate them looking, mm-hmm. which it seems like even if the women didn't really care, maybe, I don't know, maybe the the the, the narrator of the gospel, well, I guess they're going to encounter Jesus later, so. But they don't know that. <laughs> yeah. No, they but don't know the, that. The narrator does know, yeah. Yeah, the, but the narrator. Yeah, it's it's interesting the way that it sort of moves around. Like, yes, there is sensory evidence of this, but it but it somehow still doesn't focus on that. Yeah. I think that's really important, Amy. And so the, you know, I, I have so many students when I'm teaching New Testament and they want, I mean, what, what they care about is that the New Testament is historically accurate at every point because what they want is a faith that is based on reliable evidence. And I keep trying to tell them like, that's not what you get. It's not what you need. Right. You, you have faith because you have faith, right? You trust that the story being passed on to you is true. 
And the search for evidence is actually counterproductive. And so it's interesting here that like, if you take the narrative woodenly, the, the angel says, I'll give you evidence, although the evidence is going to be the stone is rolled away and there's no body. So it's still not exactly evidence, but it's pretty close. Yeah. But the women don't, it's not important to the narrator to tell us that the women took the angel up on that offer. Yes. So I I love to read that as you can have the evidence if you want it. And they're like, no, we're good. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, we trust you. You're an angel. We, you know. I mean, they all, it's true that they also just had this like, insane experience of like a lightning guy coming down from it is true the sky and an earthquake and you know all that so yeah but what they end up trusting is the angel saying he's not here yeah and so it they've taken it on the testimony i mean it's it's angelic testimony like it's a high level of testimony (laughs) (laughs) yeah but nonetheless they have taken it on testimony now, maybe they went and looked in. I don't know. But the, no, but like, it's not important to the story. No, but what more could their senses have told them right. than the experience that yes. they have just had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Could it That's really it. have made them any more certain? Because yeah. as you're saying, like, it would, it would have been good evidence to look in there and not see a body. But is it, like, rock-hard truth? Like, like you know, I mean, I, I guess not. Yeah. Very interesting. Are you surprised that the women, I mean, they don't say anything to the angel. They don't ask anything. They just, they are receiving. They're in receiving mode. Yeah. And on the one hand, I was going to say, yes, it is surprising to me that they don't say anything. And then then on the other hand, it's like, what would you say (laughs) (laughs) right there? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing one could utter in that moment. That's true. That seems worth having said. You know, and it does, for me, it again sort of underscores the magnitude of like the change in the cosmos that we're talking about. Like you don't even know what, what would you need to ask Mm -hmm. in that moment? Like you've just been given the headline as well as instructions about what to do next. Yeah. And and maybe they also had some sense of, maybe they were awed a little bit. and. yeah. I'm not sure what they would ask. The instructions they get there are pretty urgent, right? Mm-hmm. And the angel even says, now hurry. Mm-hmm. And so like they, at this moment, they are the only ones anywhere mm-hmm. other than maybe the soldiers, I guess, who are too dumbfounded yeah, to do that's anything. that's true. The soldiers have witnessed this. Yes. But these, the, the gospel is entrusted to these two women. And if they don't go and, tell somebody, then that's, that's the end of that. And so it's the testimony of the angel has been received by these two and they have been tasked with going, hurrying and Mm -hmm. telling the good news. He's been raised from the dead and he's going ahead of you. So you're not going to get to see him either disciples. He's, he's gone ahead. And so, I mean, one way of reading this is they just like, they get the message and it's, it's such a, such a message. There is a, nobody else knows we got to go tell, hurry and tell that they are just like compelled not to linger, not to marvel, not to have a dialogue yeah. with the angel about what they've experienced. Right. Don't Maybe, make a little altar and pour oil on a rock and do the whole thing. Like this is not the time yeah. for that. That's really lovely, Amy, because that connects back to the transfiguration, which I was not doing. But Peter's instinct is to yeah. build a shelter when he has a holy moment and stay there. And the women's instinct is not 
is not that. Yeah. I'm reading it now that they don't even go look in the tomb. Like they don't, they're, they're so, they're so eager to go and, and share this message that they've gotten that they just go immediately. There's no lingering here. Bobby, you have something you said has me thinking a little more about the soldiers and, you know, that they are, they are also witnesses to this. But we don't know if they have any of the background information they would have needed to make sense of this. Right. You know, they they hadn't heard all these things that Jesus said was going to happen. Maybe they had sort of like word on the street is Jesus said, you know, such and such. I don't know. But the women were prepared for this yeah. moment in order and and so were able to receive this and understand enough of it really quickly yes. to act. And I, I bet the soldiers would not have been able to. That's, that's really insightful. The other question is how they got prepared. You know, the, the transfiguration was sort of a preparation for this moment, but they only Peter, James, and John were there. And so they are prepared for this moment, but mm. they're not there. And the women, I mean, I guess the women have been around presumably when Jesus has made these declarations about suffering and death and resurrection. but. Jesus wasn't directly talking to them. And so they've sort of mm-hmm. picked up like the fact that they heard, believed, were prepared, even though they were never told or shown directly. It's really remarkable. Yeah. They, they would have had to work a little harder to get, to get there. Yeah. You know, in the next little section of text that we're not going to read today, starting in verse 11, the, the soldiers go back to Jerusalem and they, tell the priests what happened. So they've been taking it in. They didn't know how to respond to it. So they just froze, Mm -hmm. but they've been paying attention. And then the priests are going to tell them to just say that you fell asleep and Jesus's disciples came and stole the body. Like it's a big cover up Mm -hmm. first century Mm -hmm. cover up. And then he even goes on to say, if the governor gets upset with you, we'll cover for you. So it's like, it's just so funny. It's like the, you know, the way people talk about, secret government agents hiding, you know, what really has happened. Like the same thing was happening in the first century Roman empire. Yeah. Yep. It sure is. (laughs) (laughs) This is quite something that they have to cover up. Yeah. Bobby, I don't know why exactly, but I, I like that the angel ends these instructions with, this is my message for you. Ah, Although let me ask first, in my, the way that they make the quotations work, the quotation marks work in my translation, that is clearly being addressed to the women and is not part of what they're supposed to say to the disciples. Yeah. Is that how the CEB reads that also? It is how the CEB reads it. Mm. Yes. So the quotation of what you're supposed to say ends with, you will see him there. And then the angel in the CEB addresses, I've given the message to you. Yeah. I was looking in the Greek to see if it was marked in any kind of way. And I I don't think it is in a way that you can determine whether, like who that's addressed to. But Mm -hmm. your translation is, this is my message for you. Mm -hmm. The CEB is, I've given the message to you which I think might work a little bit better. So it's like, There's more hey, like women, pointedness about that. Here's the message. I've given yeah. it to you. Yes. So it is, it is now your responsibility. Yes. I'm not going to show up to the disciples. Yes. I've given the message to you. Yes. That's the way that I read this. 
I like that a lot. And I think that even though my translation doesn't sort of get you all the way there, that's what I like about, that's what I like about the fact that that's appended on there is sort of like, I, the angel, am also a messenger. I came with a message and I've given it to you. And now you are a messenger. And this is, you know, it's like this sort of like relay race <laughs> to, yeah. to, you know, spread the news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I like that idea. And it also, I don't know, makes some sense to me of this whole scene that's just played out where there's no conversation between the angel and the women or the angel and anyone there. It's just the angel comes and says the stuff and then says, this is what you have to do, you know, 10-4. Yeah. Yes. I've, I've done my part and now it's, and now it's on you. Yes. The responsibility that, that is placed on the women here is, is kind of remarkable. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Like that you, the two of you have the gospel. I've given it to you. Now you go and spread. Don't drop the gospel. <laughs> do, not, do not mess this up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other thing yeah. that's interesting in this little section that I just wanted to point out is the angel, I mean, as angels do, when the angel shows up, the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. And I mean, angels are scary and this guy's got a lightning face and, and the, <laughs> the soldiers are frozen, like reasonable, but Can you also, be this guy for Halloween one year? <laughs> lightning face. That would be amazing. Lightning face Williamson. Lightning. Yeah. I don't know if I can get my clothes that white. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Laundry's not my great thing. Anyway, we've seen, we've heard do not be afraid throughout this gospel at different points along the way, all the way back even in 120, the birth narrative, when the angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Mm-hmm. There's been this kind of repeat, repetition of this idea. So Jesus says it to his disciples when he stills the storm in chapter 8, and also when he walks on the water in chapter 14. In chapter 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, which, you know, is what's happening, like literally happening right here. Mm-hmm. It also happens in chapter 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration when the voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. And the disciples fall down. And then Jesus touches them and says, don't be afraid. And then they get up and go down the mountain. So this like, don't be afraid has been part of Matthew's way of telling this story all along. Here it's given to the women in this very urgent moment. But there is some sort of sense in which like some of this stuff is kind of scary. (laughs) Like being a person of faith is a little scary and don't be afraid. Now here's your task. And it's so, um, we'll get into this a little more in the next section, I think, but you know that, well, maybe maybe we'll, I'll I'll hold it to the next session. The question of the various ways that fear can look and be fruitful and not fruitful. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else from these couple verses that you want to draw out? I think that's it. Well, then let's see. I was going to say where the story ends, but we don't actually read all of it. We only read through verse 10. So I'm picking up then in verse 8. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. I love mm. so many things about these verses, Bobby. Mm-hmm. Tell me but some I wanna, of them. 
I, well, I want to pick up first on the on the do not be afraid, which of course is echoed yeah. again at the end of this. But the first verse is the manner in which the women left the yeah. scene quickly. Yes. With fear. Yeah. And great joy. Yes. And so I want to like, I want to nuance a little bit what, what it means when we say, don't be afraid. Cause then the women go on to act with yes. fear. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about sort of fear and joy going together or, or the word fear in Greek or in Hebrew, or I don't know, draw out a little bit, some nuance here. There's got to be some nuance. No, I really love that. I, I really want to hear what you think about that. But here's here's a few things that I would say. One is, yeah, I really love the NRSV's translation. The CEB gives excitement, fear, and excitement, mm. which is, hmm. I mean, okay. <laughs> the Greek there is kara, uh, which means joy or happiness or rejoicing. Like excitement seems a little, I don't know, frenetic or something. Like it's yeah. this like deep happiness mixed yeah. with the Greek there is phobos, right? The Like phobia, like fear, like mm-hmm. legitimate fear. Mm-hmm. The very thing which the angel has said, don't have this. And I really love that combination. You know, in Mark's gospel, it ends with the women going away and saying nothing to anyone for they were very afraid. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, such, like, it's the creepiest gospel ending. Yeah. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. This, they still have that. They still have the fear. But the deep joy, the deep rejoicing, the yes. deep happiness has empowered them to act even in their fearfulness. Yes. And I really love that because like, don't be afraid. Like the, the best way to make me scared of something is to tell me it's not to, to, say, to be scared be of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so like to say like, you should not be afraid, I feel like is unreasonable. Yeah. But to say it's okay that you're afraid but your deep gladness, your deep joy at this news that you have received needs to overcome your fear so that you act in the world, right? And that's the same thing that happened at the transfiguration is maybe you're still in awe on the mountain, but we need to go back to the world. So it doesn't freeze us up like those guards are frozen. Yeah. It, the the joy here allows us to overcome that. Oh, that's kind of where my head goes with it. What, what do you do with that? I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty similar. You know, I'm thinking of, and I don't know if this is the same with that verb in Greek, but you know, that the Hebrew verb for fear is both sort of fear and awe and -hmm. whether it, you know, we can understand it differently in different contexts. But I mean, I think, I think it's a really different thing to tell someone don't be paralyzed by fear or don't act uh, only in response to fear. Like, don't don't let that be the only thing. Don't let that be your driver. But, you know, as you were saying, like, fear is a real part of the human story. And at this moment of like, hey, hey, the cosmos has <laughs> shifted and everything yeah. you've known is about to change. And, yes. you know, I uh, in my imagining, it is the fear the fear is part of what lit the women up to push them so quickly to go. Like it, it, it can be something that locks you down or it can be something that pushes you forward. It's, um, and, and, you know, here, thank God it pushes them forward. And where in, in Mark, it 
it doesn't. Right. That's exactly <laughs> you right. You know? So the question is, is how you respond to the fear. Yes. Or and maybe it's, you know, the fact that here it's mixed with this great joy that mm-hmm. that enables them to um mm-hmm. respond. I love to that. It. But I afraid, I don't love lose, that combination. Don't lose touch with the joy. I think that life yeah. is scary. <laughs> you know, it like is. not just this story, but life, but also full of joy. And so that message I think is really beautiful. Don't lose sight of the joy when you're afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Don't freeze. Yeah. And then Bobby, I love this like surprise appearance by Jesus (laughs) so much. Okay. Did I read the story correctly that like, this is not what the angel said was going to happen. That's exactly right. The angel said, Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. Right. The women turn around still in Jerusalem headed to tell the disciples. And then there's Jesus. Yeah. Who says, greetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's so cute. Okay, I know I should, probably shouldn't call Jesus cute, but it just <laughs> is like, um, I, I think I am projecting, but so much like happiness and like relieved energy. And yeah. like just coming from Jesus himself. Yeah. In this scene. You're actually going to go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, you're actually going to go, but also, okay, I might really be projecting here, so you got to pull me back in, Bobby, if we need to do that. But, like, this, you know, there there is a heaviness about Jesus before all this intense suffering needs to oh, happen yeah. because all this intense suffering needs to happen and he needs to not be oh, yeah. distracted from the inevitability of that or the importance of that. And I don't know. I just feel like there's this like, we made it kind of feeling yeah. like after you, like we did it. Like, we, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and like, it seems like Jesus more than anyone would be happy to be on the other side yeah. of this very bad weekend that he's had. <laughs> <laughs> I love that way of reading it, Amy. There's so much in this, this little bit, but I love that way of reading it because when I read it, I was like, Jesus appearing here is entirely unnecessary to this story. Totally unnecessary. The angel has said, go. The women have gone. The instruction is to go to Galilee where he will meet you. And he does. Spoiler alert. We'll read it next time. And he doesn't have to appear here. And so the fact that he does, I love that way of reading it. I just, just can't wait. That he can't wait. He's like, <laughs> yeah. <"Yee!"> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love that. It's like a kid on Christmas morning or whatever. Oh, like, you totally. Some, yeah, you just can't. Like, you got to get up super early and go. I love that. How how else does it? Okay, so there's my like super gleeful reading, which is is partially just I think because of there's an exclamation point in my translation. <laughs> yeah. My kids actually, my teenage kids give me a hard time if I, they say I can't put like, yes, period in uh, oh, yeah. text messages. Oh, yeah. It's like angry. Right. Yeah. But if you put an exclamation point, it sounds like super happy. Right. And then there's a like middle of the road, just, you know, yes, which is, I don't care. Stop texting me. <laughs> so, so I may be, I don't know. I may be overreading the exclamation point a little bit with my interpretation of this has been informed again by our liturgist, Terry Peterson, who on the Bible Worm Collaborative the other day was, what she was saying about this text, she was contrasting it to John's telling. Do you remember last year in that tomb, Mary Magdalene 
after they have gone into the tomb and they've seen that Jesus isn't there, Mary Magdalene lingers at the tomb weeping. Mm. And Jesus comes to her while she's lingering at the tomb Mm. weeping and says, why are you weeping? And then she recognizes him. And so that text had something to it about it. It's important to linger in the sorrow. Yeah. What Terry was noticing, and I think it's exactly right, is this text is sort of almost the opposite of that. Yeah. You had to turn your back and leave the tomb to go do the thing you were told to do before you encountered Jesus. Yeah. And to me, I think that's really important. Maybe John's version and Matthew's version are important in their own time. And so it's good that we read different ones, different years. Yeah. So we have, we have some sort of options. But that notion of you've gone to the tomb to look at it. This thing has happened. There's no need for you to be there any longer. And once you're on the way, you've responded to the call. You're going to do the thing in fear and excitement, fear and joy. Then Jesus appears to you even though it's entirely unnecessary to the plot of the story, <laughs> right? So I don't know that that part was Terry, but um, like you get the evidence you need once you have acted without any evidence or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the, you get encouragement on the journey once you have started the journey, but you can't just linger at the tomb mm-hmm. or you never encounter the risen Jesus. I think that was really important, insightful interpretation. I think that's really important. And I just am, am really appreciating, you know, even more because you're bringing in that sort of uh, call to what happens in John. And you've mentioned Mark too. This may be a, such a remedial thing to say, but like the different envisionings of how this played out. And there's, you know, like in this story, the women have had like a veritable theophany. Like it's, I mean, really clearly some godly being has shown up that really changes the tenor of things. It does. You know? And yeah, I don't know to read these, these stories of the women and imagining how they would have responded if it had played out like this or if it had played out like this. Yeah, that's true. And how I said without any evidence, but an angelophany is (laughs) pretty, pretty impressive. So, I, I mean, this seems like a pretty impressive one. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a, it doesn't look like a man in a robe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. It's also interesting that Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Yeah. When they've already been told not to be afraid and then they are already acting. I don't know. Maybe you just can't be told don't be afraid enough. Like the fear, the fear is always creeping back. Yeah, it's and it's interesting here too that like again the women they they do respond to Jesus's presence. So we get some sense of the headspace they're in. They don't like pass out cold on the floor. Right. <laughs> you know, they recognize Jesus and, you know, worship him, grab hold of his feet. But it doesn't sound like they're af- afraid. Mm-hmm. This sort of you know, you were talking a little bit ago about the double sense of the word fear. It is also mm-hmm. true in the Greek. Mm. that being afraid and experiencing sort of overwhelming reverence Mm. are related. That's interesting. So you saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration when the voice speaks, they, they prostrate themselves. And here, when Jesus appears, they prostrate themselves. So if you think about it that way, like I'm just sort of working off the top of my head here, but we, we had the first sort of fear in the beginning of this text, which paralyzed the soldiers. And the angel said, don't be like that. Mm-hmm. Then they encountered Jesus and they 
prostrate mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. And maybe Jesus is saying, don't get stuck here. Yeah, it's not don't be like that, but don't get stuck like that. That's exactly right. Which then takes us back to the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. When God speaks from the clouds, it is entirely appropriate to experience awesome reverence and prostrate oneself. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus corrects that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't get stuck like that. We got to go. Mm-hmm. And so here again, don't get stuck like that. You got to go. I love that way of thinking about it. Don't get paralyzed by fearfulness, mm-hmm. but neither get paralyzed by worshipfulness. Mm-hmm. It's appropriate what they've done here. It's not mm-hmm. being corrected, mm-hmm. I don't think. Mm-hmm. But you can't stay that way. You've got a, you've got a message to tell. Mm. I love that. I have one last thought on this, and then I know we probably need to move on towards closing. But, you know, I was thinking to myself, why would, again, like, why does Jesus appear to them? They're doing what they're supposed to do. It doesn't seem like that they don't, it doesn't seem like they need it. Yeah. Um, So we could read it as, you know, Jesus just can't wait. (laughs) Yeah. But I wonder, too, if there's a, a sense that, I mean, I don't know what happens after this, but like. It could be the mission itself could be frightening. Like you, we're asking you to do a thing that that puts you in danger. Yeah. So do not become afraid, uh, not mm-hmm. of Jesus, but of what all you know this all is going to mean. Don't be afraid right. to be involved. In which case, seeing Jesus is one of those things that like fills your cup a little bit more. Like their cup was okay. It was fine before the angel filled their cup and their cup seems like it was pretty full before. You know, their faith is strong, but it does seem like it's another sort of bolstering thing that would enable them to not get stuck in fear. Like gives you a lot of momentum. Yeah. I like that a lot. Anything else you want to say on these couple verses or? I don't think so. Then it's time. Wrap it up. What are you thinking about these verses and how they might live in our communities or our minds today? So my community, of course, is celebrating Easter. And so this text has particular relevance and insistence for us, I think. I'm 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 sort of mulling a couple of things which I think are related. One of them is Terry's point, which I think is a really beautiful one that you can't get stuck at the tomb, Mm -hmm. that it's when you go and do what you've been called to go and do that you encounter Jesus. You get the sense here that if they had stayed at the tomb, they might not have encountered Jesus. So there's a go, and then Jesus will appear to you. At the same time, there's also in this text, it is important that they went to the tomb to look at the tomb. If they had not gone to the tomb, then they couldn't have gone down this road and encountered Jesus. They wouldn't have gotten the story. And so I think I, w- I want to ponder this idea that it's important. It's important to look at the tomb. It's important to look at the brokenness. It's important to grieve the past. It's important to pay respect to what has been and is no longer. All of that matters, but you can't get stuck there. Mm-hmm. Once you have done that, then you have to say, okay, here's the calling and move away. Let that be what it is and move on toward the thing to which you have been called because that's where new life appears to you. Yeah. 
I don't want to, so I just don't want to skip past the tomb, but I also don't want us to get stuck there. I, I think, I don't know exactly how that plays out in the church, but I, I can think of all sorts of ways in which the church both gets stuck in looking at its past and also ways in which it's trying to move into a future without acknowledging what has been lost. So I think this Easter text is an invitation to do both of those things. The other thing that I'm really loving, which I think is related, is what we were talking about just a little bit ago about, it's not that there can be no fear, it's that you shouldn't lose sight of the joy in light of the fear. So lean into the joy, which propels you forward, yeah, rather than focusing on the fear, which keeps you frozen. Yeah, I think, I mean, I hear in both of those messages, and I think this is sort of, you know, where I'm thinking too, this, this uh, tension between needing to figure out how to move into the next thing and also like acknowledging what is real for you in the moment and what you really feel. And like, you know, we can't just mm-hmm. pretend we don't feel the things we feel. We feel the grief. We feel the draw to the tomb. We feel the fear. And I don't think anybody wins when we pretend we don't feel those things. Yeah, right. But, you know, my community is not celebrating Easter. And so, like, the specific resonances of this text are, you know, maybe a little more abstract in my life. But I think that overarching idea that when I am, when I feel fear, to ask the question, like, okay, okay you feel fear. What else do you feel? Yes. Like, is there another thing on the table that I can lean towards? In it, you know, accompanying the fear, <laughs> or you know, maybe it's where is their joy, but but maybe it's not always joy. Fear is can be a great activator or can shut you down, but I don't know. I'll be interested in sort of exploring the question for myself in all the ways that I you know feel fear for myself or for my religious community's future or for, but you know, all the, all the ways that we might fear the massive changes that the world throws at us. We feel fear and, and, and what, and what else? That's really beautiful, Amy. And, you know, you were saying that your community is not celebrating Easter, which which seems as it should be, but you are (laughs) in the same season celebrating Passover. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about the Passover ritual and the, the acknowledgement at the same time of the bitterness and the the blood and the, the, the mm. things that have happened to the community in Egypt. And then also the celebration of liberation and freedom and possibility in the future. And it was reminding me of that text we talked about way back in the fall, Exodus 14, where the Israelites are standing on the edge of the sea and they're about to cross through into a new world and how afraid they were. Mm-hmm. And yet they took the step forward and went through mm-hmm. And so, like, to me, this, this message that we're talking about is a biblical message, and it resonates in that text, it resonates in this text, it resonates in your tradition, it resonates in my tradition. Mm-hmm. We might frame it in different ways, but don't be afraid, embrace the joy, live into the possible future. I think that's a, a rich message for all of us. Yeah. And what are the things we do? I just, this last thought, I promise. A couple years ago, we were talking about a Passover text, maybe Exodus 12 or something like that. And 
uh, it was describing that the rituals and putting the blood on the doorpost for that so the plagues would pass over the houses of the Israelites. And I think you asked me the impossible question, what would have happened if the Israelites didn't put blood on their house? What if someone <laughs> just didn't? They yeah. were like, I don't want to. That's gross. I'm not going to do yeah. that. Would the angel actually have struck down that family? Yeah. I mean, who knows? What a ridiculous question I, I <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, no one knows yet. Who knows? But my my totally like made up in the moment answer to the question was, no, God would not have struck them down in the moment, but they might not have had what it took to do the next part. I remember that now. Yeah. Because it does, it takes, it takes baby steps. It takes practice. Like the women are prepared for this because of the way they've, you know, surrounded themselves with stories of Jesus. And the Israelites are prepared for it because they have thrown in their lot together and done some crazy stuff they were asked to do. Like, why would someone ask you to do that? I don't know, but we're going to try it. And that's that can help propel us through the fear that will be there. The fear will be there. This conversation is like connecting me to the whole season <laughs> Bible worm. Because we, <laughs> we talked about Esther and like what has prepared you for this moment. And you had that beautiful mm-hmm. conversation about every moment of my life. I think what has prepared me to do the thing that comes next. The, thing and the women in this text next. have been prepared by, by these things. They're not just doing it. Um, out of their own strength, although it it is their strength, but it is a strength that has also been prepared. Yeah. I love it. It all comes together. Well, how lovely for this text to connect us to to so many other, so many other biblical texts and themes. This has been a beautiful conversation. Mm -hmm. And next week we will pick up in this same chapter, just a few verses later with chapter 28 verses 16 to 20. Oh, that's short. It is short. The Great Commission. It's an important text. It's very short. All righty. Well, I look forward to it. Gives us like 15 minutes per verse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. A lot of stories in there. (laughs) There you go. Amy, thanks for this conversation. Yes, thank you. And um, happy Easter season, y'all. And happy Passover season to my fellow members of the tribe. Amen. (laughs) See you, Amy. joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby and our theme music is the world at large by Dano songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Kevin Rutledge, Caroline Dean, Robert Newbert, and Colin Bagby. Join us again next week for our very last week in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Until then, keep on digging.